It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. At two in the morning on February 11th, 1993, 31-year-old Dennis Rodman was completely alone. He sat in the front seat of his truck, parked in a vast, empty lot outside the Detroit Pistons' home arena. Pearl Jam blasted from the radio, but no matter how loud Rodman turned up the volume, he couldn't drown out his thoughts. He felt worthless. The goodwill he'd garnered from his championship wins had faded. Friends had left him, tensions with the ownership were flaring, and worst of all, the team was on a losing streak. To top it off, his personal life was in shambles. His marriage had disintegrated, resulting in a nasty divorce and a vicious battle for custody of his child. Rodman felt trapped, attacked from all sides. The more he reflected on his life, the more hopeless Rodman became. After a while, he opened the door and walked to the truck bed. There, where he'd left it, was a 22 caliber hunting rifle. He picked up the gun and gripped the barrel tightly. Maybe there was no escape. Maybe this was the end. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. This is our second episode on Dennis Rodman, a dominant NBA defender who became just as famous for his off-court antics as he did for his incredible athleticism. Last week, we focused on Rodman's tough childhood and his rocky rise to NBA stardom. This week, we'll cover the second half of Rodman's career, as well as his struggles with celebrity and sobriety. By June of 1990, 29-year-old Dennis Rodman had clawed his way to the top of the basketball world. His Detroit Pistons, nicknamed the Bad Boys because of their physically punishing defense, won their second consecutive NBA championship. During the previous season, which gave him his first real turn as a starter, Rodman led the team in rebounds and was crowned the Defensive Player of the Year. Pistons rewarded him with a sizable pay increase. He'd go on to make nearly $1 million in the 1990-91 season. Somehow, in the span of 10 years, Rodman had gone from janitor to NBA star. He played for a team he loved and a coach, Chuck Daly, who he respected. On the basketball court, Rodman felt invincible. Off the court, however, not all was well. He had just ended an ugly legal battle with Annie Bakes, the mother of his two-year-old daughter. 
Bakes alleged that Rodman had been physically abusive towards her and refused to financially support their daughter. Rodman quietly settled out of court, successfully keeping the case out of the papers for the most part. In doing so, he managed to smooth things over with Bakes, though the two continued to have a rocky relationship. Despite all the distractions, 29-year-old Rodman tried to focus on improving his game. During the 1990-91 season, Rodman honed his rebounding skills. He didn't just want to be great. He wanted to be the best. He was obsessed with earning the league's rebounding title, given to the player who got the most total rebounds per game. All the work paid off, and Rodman had one of the best seasons of his career. Though he didn't win the rebounding title, he led the league with 361 offensive rebounds and was awarded his second Defensive Player of the Year award. Unfortunately, the rest of the Pistons weren't nearly as successful. A few key players left the team, and Detroit ended up second in the division. In the Eastern Conference Finals, Michael Jordan and the Bulls finally defeated the bad boys. It was the end of an era. Rodman didn't take the losses well. As the Bulls beat the Pistons in the final game of the series, Rodman unnecessarily shoved Bulls player Scottie Pippen out of bounds. After the game, he walked off the court without shaking hands with the opposing players. In the locker room, Rodman once again lashed out at the media and blasted the team that beat him. The Pistons called Michael Jordan whiny for complaining about their team's physical play style and said Bulls coach Phil Jackson was a baby. The response to Rodman's behavior was swift and intense. The NBA fined him $5,000 for shoving Pippen off the court. The mayor of Chicago publicly stated he should have been fined $100,000. Rodman tried to make amends by faxing a letter of apology to Scottie Pippen, but it was clearly a farce. The writing was stilted and overly formal. Pippen didn't even believe that Rodman himself had actually written it and refused to accept it. Rodman was turning heel, now seen by the fans and his fellow players as a troublemaking villain. The controversy only spurred Rodman to work even harder. Given his personal reputation, he realized he had to be undeniable on the court. Otherwise, no one would respect him. The next season, he had his best year yet and finally won a rebounding title. Unfortunately, the Pistons still weren't able to reclaim their past glory and fell even further behind the Bulls in the standings. They were eliminated from the playoffs in the first round by the New York Knicks. In the aftermath of the disappointing season, coach Chuck Daly resigned. Rodman was shocked and angered by the coaching change. He felt that the Pistons' ownership had stabbed Daly in the back. Rodman lost his mentor and closest ally on the team. Looking for stability elsewhere, Rodman turned his attention back to his personal life. On September 28, 1992, Rodman married Annie Bakes in a small ceremony in Lake Tahoe. Rodman thought that the union would give him the emotional fulfillment he longed for, but he quickly lost interest in being married. He didn't really care about being monogamous or even pretending to be. Within a month of their wedding, he was already cheating on Bakes. Their marriage only lasted 82 days. Bakes was beside herself. She took their daughter back to her home in Sacramento and told Rodman that she was leaving him for good. She didn't want him to have any contact with their daughter. 
In the midst of this personal turmoil, Rodman got the call to return to work. NBA training camp began in the fall of 1992, but Rodman had no interest in going back to the Pistons, despite the three years left on his contract. Everyone he'd known and trusted was gone. Coach Chuck Daly, several of his closest teammates, his trainer, and even the general manager who'd originally drafted him. On top of it all, he was 2,000 miles away from his daughter. He felt completely abandoned. So Rodman didn't show up for training camp. He claimed he was deeply depressed because of the impending divorce and custody battle. It was all too much for him. His childhood sensitivity re-emerged and mingled with a desperate need for validation. He wanted to both hide from the world while remaining in the spotlight. So he withdrew from everything, including basketball. The stunt naturally made big news, and Rodman was again the center of attention. His behavior confused his team, his fans, and the press. With no other choice, the Pistons began their training camp without their star player. They tried to force Rodman's return by fining him $1,000 for each preseason game he missed and $300 for every missed practice. The fines were nothing to Rodman, and he continued his holdout. He stayed literally in the same building as his teammates, watching preseason exhibition games from a luxury suite in the arena. He wanted everyone to pay attention to him while he ignored his own team. Chuck Daly finally reached out to Rodman and convinced him to return to the court. Rodman came back just before the regular season, by which time he'd accrued $14,000 in fines. But he didn't stay long. In the fourth game of the season, Rodman suffered a knee injury. When the doctors cleared him to return, Rodman refused. He was frustrated at his injury and once again lashed out at his team. He just didn't want to play for them anymore. He chose not to join the Pistons on their road trip. By that time, their patience was wearing thin. They resumed fining him, and soon, both Rodman and the team were settling on the idea that he wouldn't be in Detroit much longer. They had started to look into possible trade options. It took another intervention from Chuck Daly and a meeting between Rodman and the Pistons' front office to convince him to return. By that point, some accounts report that he'd been fined up to $86,000 and had missed two weeks' worth of games. Daly advised Rodman to come back not because of the Pistons or because of his contract, but because he loved basketball. The sport was one of the few things in his life that had remained constant throughout his personal struggles. On November 25, 1992, Rodman resumed playing for the Pistons without missing a beat. He grabbed a season-high 20 total rebounds, though the team ultimately lost to the Charlotte Hornets. As the season went on, Rodman continued his dominant defense, leading the league in rebounds despite all the games he'd missed. The trade rumors around Rodman simmered down. On the inside, Rodman was still deeply unhappy and his relationship with the team remained strained, but outwardly, things seemed smoothed over between him and the Pistons. He was committed to showing up and playing well. Then, on January 14, 1993, Rodman suffered another setback. During a game against the Atlanta Hawks, he felt something pop in his right leg. After the game, tests revealed that Rodman had a small tear in his calf. The injury would keep him out of games for at least a month. 
What little stability Rodman had cobbled together since returning in November was shattered. The one thing he could lean on, basketball, had been taken away from him at the worst possible time. His mood soured over the next few weeks as he recovered from the injury. With every game he missed, Rodman felt increasingly isolated and starved for attention. Almost four weeks after the injury, on the night of February 11, 1993, Detroit police received a concerned phone call. It was from one of Dennis Rodman's friends. Rodman had seemed despondent and depressed over the past week, and now he disappeared, along with his gun. When we come back, Dennis Rodman reaches his lowest point. Now, back to the story. 31-year-old Dennis Rodman had reached the end of his rope. After winning two championships with the Detroit Pistons, Rodman had watched the team fracture and fall apart. Meanwhile, his personal life was in shambles, and his bitter relationship with his ex-wife prevented him from seeing his daughter. On February 11, 1993, Rodman took a late-night drive out to the Pistons' home arena, the Palace of Auburn Hills. Sitting in the back of the truck was his 22 caliber hunting rifle. Sometime after midnight, Rodman went to the team's facilities and allegedly worked out by himself. His mind was racing. He couldn't think clearly or stop dwelling on how alone and abandoned he felt. Afterwards, he returned to his truck and sat in the front seat for hours. He contemplated suicide, but never fired the gun and instead fell asleep. At five in the morning, police officers arrived at the parking lot and found Rodman sleeping in his car. They woke him up and questioned him, but Rodman denied having any suicidal thoughts. Unsure of whether he posed a danger to himself, the police mandated that Rodman visit his psychiatrist before being released. The psychiatrist reported that Rodman was not suicidal and let him leave. Afterwards, some of Rodman's teammates viewed the entire incident as another cry for attention. Many believed Rodman had simply fallen asleep in the parking lot after working out. They figured that when Rodman realized that others saw him as a potential suicide risk, he went along with it for the sympathy. Years later, Rodman was inconsistent when recounting the events of that night. By some reports, he claimed he contemplated suicide and even fired the rifle in the air. In interviews, he said he wasn't suicidal and had just fallen asleep after working out. Regardless of what really happened, that February night was a harbinger of things to come. Rodman had been a rising star on a high-profile basketball team from the moment he was drafted. The spotlight had always been trained on him. But now, the attention was fading. The Pistons were no longer the biggest team in the NBA, having been completely eclipsed by Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Rodman seemed to hate playing second fiddle, so he started doing everything he could to draw the focus back to himself. He started by shaving the words, bite the melon, into his head, spawning a new catchphrase among Detroit fans. He continued to shirk his responsibilities, missing flights and practices. Once, he showed up to a game less than 15 minutes before tip-off. Despite it all, Rodman played well when he was on the court. He led the league in total rebounds and rebounds per game despite a mediocre Pistons team. But it wasn't enough. The Pistons finished with 40 wins when the 1992-93 season mercifully ended. Not enough to make the playoffs. 
The team's front office entered the offseason with one major objective, trade Dennis Rodman. After months of back-and-forth negotiations and failed attempts to trade Rodman to the Phoenix Suns, the Pistons finally managed to ink a deal with the San Antonio Spurs. Not unlike the Pistons when they first drafted Rodman, the Spurs were a solid team that needed a few extra weapons to put them over the top. Rodman is said to have agreed to a trade only if the Spurs promised to add a one-year, $6 million extension on top of the three remaining years on his contract. The Spurs, desperate to get one of the best defenders in the league, apparently agreed. 32-year-old Dennis Rodman made his mark immediately upon arriving in San Antonio. He sported yet another look in November of 1993, this time dyeing his hair bleach blonde. Over the course of the season, his attention-seeking antics only intensified. It was only a matter of time until they spilled over onto the court. During a December game against his old rivals, the Chicago Bulls, he got into an altercation with opposing player Stacy King. The tensions escalated until Rodman lost his temper and head-butted King, causing the benches to clear. A few months later, he did it again, this time head-butting John Stockton of the Utah Jazz. Just past the midpoint of the season, Rodman had amassed nearly $20,000 in fines from the NBA on top of five ejections and two one-game suspensions. The league commissioner, David Stern, even called Rodman in for a personal meeting and tried to convince him to stop causing trouble. Rodman bristled at orders from Stern and his coaches. He was furious that the powers that be were trying to control him. The night after his meeting with Stern, he returned to the court, immediately committed another technical foul, and his coach pulled him from the game. In response, the crowd booed the Spurs coach. They wanted to see Dennis Rodman out there, headbutting players and being the bad boy he was supposed to be. All the attention only encouraged Rodman, and soon he grew bolder. Fans and the media loved his antics. Rodman saw himself as the team's main attraction and was devoted to living up to that role. On March 8, 1994, Rodman gave an interview to ESPN's Roy Firestone that became the talk of sports commentators for the next week. He opened up about his fractured relationship with his ex-wife and how it prevented him from seeing his daughter often enough. Switching gears, Roy Firestone asked Rodman about some of his high-profile celebrity fans. Rodman took the opportunity to make more headlines. He casually singled out one fan he was romantically interested in, Madonna. In many ways, Rodman and Madonna were similar. They were both at the center of their own media circuses, and both had taken to intentionally outrageous behavior. Rodman sought attention with his wild hair and eccentric interviews, while Madonna relied on provocative music and a sexually charged public image. In an interview in 1994, she praised Rodman as the Madonna of the NBA. In June 1994, the two of them finally met in person for a magazine piece. They found that they had instant chemistry and spent that night together. By the following month, their budding relationship dominated the tabloids. Rodman was now getting more attention than ever before, and he loved it. The relationship didn't last long and was over by the end of the year. But it opened Rodman up to something he'd never experienced before, the world of entertainment gossip. 
His public life became even more sensational as Rodman tried to follow in Madonna's footsteps. He began cross-dressing, dyeing his hair even stranger colors and wearing dog collars. His interviews became long digressions into his own sexual proclivities and possible bisexuality. None of these indulgences helped his basketball career. While his regular season stats remained good, he largely failed at elevating his team. In 1994, in a first-round playoff series against the Utah Jazz, Rodman hurt the Spurs by swearing at the opposing bench and getting suspended for a game. After the playoff failures, the team went through a change in management. The new leadership no longer wanted to give the erratic Rodman a $6 million extension. Rodman was furious. The Spurs were blatantly going back on a promise that would give him the financial security he needed. In his mind, he was the one selling tickets and earning the team prominence, even if they hadn't made it to the championship. And he needed the money more than ever. Not only was he struggling to pay the nearly $10,000 a month he owed in alimony and child support, but he'd also acquired an expensive gambling habit. During the season, he'd regularly take trips to Las Vegas and gamble away his paycheck. The betrayal reminded Rodman of his struggles with the Pistons. Once again, he reacted by skipping practices and preseason games. Rodman hoped that by proving he was willing to sit out, he could convince the Spurs to pay him, or at least trade him to a team that would. When he finally returned to the court, he was angry and volatile. In his final preseason game, he swore at the officials and threw a bag of ice at his own head coach. The Spurs suspended him without pay to start the season. The team struggled without Rodman, and fans became restless. Getting desperate, the Spurs head coach made a personal appeal to Rodman, telling him that the team wouldn't succeed without him. Finally, Rodman agreed to come back. After losing $90,000 in salary and missing nearly 20 games, Rodman rejoined the Spurs and received a hero's welcome from the fans in San Antonio. Almost immediately, it was clear that the Spurs were a different team with Rodman in the rotation. They quickly shot up to the top of the division. But for many on the team, they were hollow victories. Everyone knew they could suddenly be deprived of their star player at any moment. All too soon, they were proven right. With less than 20 games left in the season, Rodman was motorcycling through San Antonio when he hit the brakes too hard at a stop sign. He went flying over the handlebars and slammed into the pavement, separating his right shoulder. Doctors said he would miss a minimum of two weeks. Surprisingly, the Spurs won 12 games in a row and clinched the division without Rodman. Their triumphs only frustrated Rodman more. It showed him that he wasn't really irreplaceable. He couldn't always be the center of attention. He refused to get rid of the chip on his shoulder, even as he joined the team in the playoffs. He hated being pushed out of the spotlight and threw a tantrum. In Game 3 of the Western Conference semifinals against the Lakers, Rodman refused to even re-enter the game in its final quarter. The next game, Rodman was benched. Any goodwill he had earned with his head coach or teammates was gone now. They were up 2-1 to one in the series. Without Rodman, the Spurs won Game 4 and lost Game 5. Desperate to put the series away, the head coach made sure Rodman was in the lineup for Game 6. Rodman responded with one of the best games of his playoff career, 
scoring 12 points with 16 total rebounds in a victory that clinched a trip to the Western Conference Finals. The Spurs lost the next two games to the Houston Rockets, but managed to come back by winning games three and four thanks to a strong 19-rebound performance by Rodman. But Rodman never cooperated for long, and he was back to causing trouble soon afterward. He showed up late and hung over to the next practice. Rodman's teammates were fed up, and almost all of them asked the head coach not to start Rodman in game five. The coach obliged, but the Spurs struggled. Even when Rodman eventually entered the game, they couldn't find any rhythm. Any semblance of chemistry between the players was gone. Two days later, the Spurs lost game six and the series. The defeat shattered Rodman. Immediately after the game, he left the court without the rest of his team. He refused to fly home on the same plane. His time in San Antonio was over, and he knew it. The Spurs, like the Pistons before them, became desperate to trade him. Now 34 years old, Dennis Rodman had no idea where he was headed next. He'd done everything he'd ever strived for. He'd won a championship, snagged Defensive Player of the Year, become a star in his own right, and dated one of the most famous women in the world. But he'd also flamed out of two teams in a very public fashion, and he wasn't sure if anyone would take a chance on him again. He was shocked when his next opportunity came from an unlikely place. On October 2nd, 1995, his old rival, Michael Jordan, came knocking. The Chicago Bulls knew that Dennis Rodman would be difficult to handle, but decided to make a group effort to make Rodman comfortable. They welcomed him as warmly as they could. Head coach Phil Jackson made sure to keep Rodman happy and allow him flexibility in his scheduling. Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen did their best to make sure there was no ill will left over from past conflicts. Meanwhile, Chicago fans warmed up to Rodman, believing he could bring them another championship. It was all the attention that Rodman could ever want. Fans that loved him, a city that celebrated him, and a team that treated him like a celebrity. Whether the Bulls actually respected Rodman or were simply coddling him, their strategy worked. Rodman became eager to show he was as committed to the cause as his new team was to him. Maybe too eager. In his last preseason game, Rodman dove into the stands for a loose ball and strained his left calf, causing him to miss the first 12 games. But unlike before, when he'd suffered a similar injury in Detroit, Rodman felt supported and protected during his recovery. When he came back, he was ready to contribute. The 1995-96 Chicago Bulls were a powerhouse with Jordan, Pippen, and Rodman. By mid-March, the team was running away with their division, with 57 wins and only seven losses. Rodman played as well as he ever had, once again leading the league in rebounding. But he was still Dennis Rodman. On March 16, 1996, he got into an altercation with officials after receiving two technical fouls. Angry at the calls, he headbutted a referee. Fans, coaches, and the league were stunned. Rodman had crossed a line. It was one thing to foul a player, but another thing entirely to attack a referee. The NBA fined Rodman $20,000, suspended him for six games, and braced for Rodman's characteristic anger. 
But this time, Rodman didn't react with complete indignance. Instead, he minimized his criticism of the league and accepted his punishment. For perhaps the first time, Rodman had put the team above himself. He returned to the court after his suspension, kept his on-the-court misbehavior to a minimum, and helped the team fly through the rest of the season. The Bulls ended up setting an NBA record with 72 wins. Though his hair ranged in color from bright green to neon pink, Rodman did what the Bulls expected him to do. He was a rebounding machine, once again leading the league. He also had some of the best single games of his career, including his first and only career triple-double. The team easily trounced every opponent they faced during the first three rounds of the playoffs, culminating in a finals matchup with the Seattle Supersonics. The Sonics knew they had to contain Rodman, but they just couldn't. With one of his wildest hairstyles yet, dyed white with blue and red symbols drawn on, Rodman dominated. He collected double-digit rebounds in every game of the series. To cap it all off, Rodman delivered a 19-rebound performance in Game 6 of the Finals. The Bulls won the series. It had been the best season of Rodman's career. He'd earned the respect of his teammates, the adoration of a city, and the championship. But soon, it would all slip away. When we come back, Dennis Rodman's basketball career comes to an end, and his celebrity lifestyle implodes. Now, back to the story. In 1996, 35-year-old Dennis Rodman was flying high. After escaping a troubled team in Detroit, he'd found his rhythm with the Chicago Bulls and won his third NBA championship. Off the court, however, his antics were getting out of hand. In 1996, he angered Madonna by writing in-depth about their sex life in a memoir he published. To promote the book, he showed up to a store in a horse-drawn carriage wearing a wedding dress and declared that he was marrying himself. During the next NBA season, Rodman's celebrity overshadowed his basketball career. He began making appearances as a professional wrestler alongside Hulk Hogan, in December, a reality series called The Rodman World Tour premiered on MTV. In April of 1997, Rodman made his debut as an actor in the action movie Double Team, co-starring with Jean-Claude Van Damme. The movie was a monumental flop, especially embarrassing for Rodman after the success of Michael Jordan's Space Jam. As the media circus around him became bigger and bigger, Rodman became more volatile and self-centered. He faced multiple suspensions over the course of the season because of his expletive-ridden outbursts and technical fouls on the court. His drinking and partying escalated, and tensions rose in the Bulls' locker room. His teammates felt Rodman no longer saw basketball as his top priority. His final suspension of the season came after he tripped over a camera during the game and in anger kicked a nearby photographer in the groin. The NBA, horrified, suspended Rodman without pay for 11 games. The severity of the situation was a wake-up call. When he returned to the court after his suspension, he acted humbled and tried his best to smooth things over with the team. He paid the photographer $200,000 to drop any possible assault charges. Luckily for Rodman, his last-ditch efforts to get back on track worked. He rejoined the Bulls, and the team sailed through the regular season and playoffs. 
Even with an injured knee, Rodman led the team in rebounds and helped the Bulls win their second consecutive championship. It had been a difficult year for Dennis Rodman, but he'd come through it with yet another ring. 37-year-old Dennis Rodman played well the following year, too, winning yet another rebounding title. The Bulls were unstoppable and ended up winning their third consecutive finals victory. But a flurry of issues soon emerged that threatened to derail everything. On July 1st, 1998, only 18 days after the Bulls clinched their third championship, NBA team owners agreed to lock out the players and suspend the season after failing to come to a labor agreement. For the first time in about 17 years, Rodman wasn't playing basketball, and he wasn't getting the attention he craved. In response, Rodman began pursuing a relationship with model and actress Carmen Electra. Electra was going through a difficult time in her own life. Her mother and sister had died within weeks of each other that summer. Electra saw Rodman as a gentle giant who could understand her pain. Rodman was only too happy to date another celebrity and keep himself in the public eye. Their relationship was loud and rocky from the start, as the two constantly partied, drank, and gambled. At 7 in the morning on November 14, 1998, Rodman and Electra entered the Little Chapel of the Flowers in Las Vegas. Their sudden wedding immediately became front-page news in the tabloids. After they sobered up, Rodman and Electra realized what they'd done. After nine days of marriage, during which they didn't even see each other, Rodman filed for annulment. He claimed he was inebriated when he married Electra. A few days later, however, he changed his tune. Rodman and Electra didn't end up going through with the annulment and instead gave married life a try. Needless to say, it didn't work. Electra filed for divorce less than six months later. Fortunately, by that time, the basketball season was back, and Rodman could seek the spotlight in other ways. But in some ways, the damage had been done. During those months without basketball, Rodman lost faith in the sport. He wasn't exactly young anymore, and he worried it would all be taken away from him again soon. As usual, he sought solace in his vices, alcohol, gambling, and celebrity. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. In early 1999, Rodman signed a deal with the Los Angeles Lakers, but only played 23 games before being released. His NBA career was obviously nearing its end. Rodman reacted by drinking heavily and getting into more trouble. Over the course of 1999, the police were called to Rodman's house in Orange County dozens of times to respond to disturbance calls. In August, Rodman was arrested for public drunkenness after getting into a bar fight, though no charges were filed. In November, while shooting a movie in Florida, Rodman and his ex-wife, Carmen Electra, were both arrested after fighting at a Miami hotel. They were charged with misdemeanor battery. Just one month later, Rodman was arrested for driving drunk and without a valid license. He was a mess and was running out of chances. But there were still some teams willing to take a chance on the aging star. Rodman signed with the Dallas Mavericks in 2000, this time playing only 12 games before they released him. Physically, Rodman could still play, but he'd lost his interest in the game. He had nothing left to prove on the court. Over the next few years, Rodman's issues with the law continued. 
In 2002, he was arrested for obstructing police officers as they investigated a code violation at a restaurant he owned. In January 2003, 41-year-old Rodman was arrested for domestic violence after hitting his girlfriend, Michelle Moyer. They later reconciled and got married. None of it gave Rodman the support and attention he still needed. That fall, he decided to give basketball one final chance. He spent a season with the semi-pro Long Beach Jam, then a professional basketball league in Mexico. Rodman hoped that an NBA team might give him another chance after a solid performance. But at 43 years old, he didn't draw any interest. Realizing his basketball career was over for real this time, Rodman's personal issues worsened. In 2004, his wife filed for divorce, citing a history of domestic violence and gained custody of their two children. Around the same time, Rodman pleaded no contest in regards to a drunk driving incident in Las Vegas, during which he crashed a motorcycle outside a strip club. Rodman went to rehab multiple times for alcohol abuse. Naturally, he made sure that his troubles were filmed, appearing on several TV shows, including Celebrity Rehab and Sober House, to document his attempts to get clean. But no matter how many times he tried, Rodman never stayed clean for long. Despite all his struggles, it was impossible not to recognize Dennis Rodman's incredible record and his accomplishments. On August 12, 2011, he was inducted to the NBA Hall of Fame. At the ceremony, Rodman stood on stage in front of former teammates, coaches, and rivals. He teared up as he gave a heartfelt acceptance speech, pointing out his own flaws as well as his successes. It was a cathartic moment for him, but it was also a reminder that his time in the spotlight had truly passed. After the ceremony, Rodman's drinking worsened further. His personal life spiraled accordingly. In March of 2012, after several attempts at reconciling, Rodman's divorce from his third wife was finalized. The court ordered him to pay his wife nearly $900,000 in child and spousal support. The only problem was Rodman was broke. Desperate for cash, Rodman made money any way he possibly could, mostly through brand endorsements. He even appeared on two seasons of Celebrity Apprentice, where he befriended Donald Trump. But none of it garnered him the attention and acclaim he craved. Then in 2013, Rodman's life was turned upside down after he and three members of the Harlem Globetrotters were invited to North Korea by dictator Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un was a massive basketball fan who grew up watching Rodman and the Bulls. Speaking through a translator while the Globetrotters played an exhibition match, Rodman had a deep conversation with the dictator. After the game, Rodman gave a brief speech where he called the leader a friend for life. Kim Jong-un evidently felt the same way. Six months later, Rodman was back in North Korea to meet Kim's newborn daughter. In December, Rodman returned to North Korea to help coach the North Korean basketball team. American foreign policy officials and political reporters were dumbfounded. In January of 2014, Rodman ignited a new round of outrage and bewilderment when he led the North Korean team in a rousing rendition of Happy Birthday to celebrate Kim Jong-un. After the incident, Rodman gave interviews defending Kim and even implying that an American prisoner held by the North Koreans, Kenneth Bay, deserved to be held captive. 
Later that month, the U.S. government started looking into Rodman's odd relationship with Kim Jong-un. They suspected he had violated sanctions by purchasing over $10,000 in birthday presents for Kim. In 2017, during a period of increased tension between North Korea and the United States, Rodman visited Kim Jong-un again. This time, it wasn't just about sports. He claimed his goal was to bring peace between the U.S. and North Korea. Flush with new importance, Rodman connected Kim with his old buddy Donald Trump, giving Kim a copy of Trump's book, The Art of the Deal. At that point, Rodman was the only man in the world to have met both Kim and Trump. Some have speculated that he was acting as an unofficial emissary of the United States government. After years of searching, after untold successes and troubles, Dennis Rodman had finally found the spotlight again. He continued to play his odd part despite the controversy. In June of 2018, Rodman flew to Singapore for the historic summit between Trump and Kim. Although he wasn't officially invited, he bragged about having a meeting with Trump's Homeland Security advisor. He enthusiastically gave several interviews about the event, soaking in all the attention he could. And he couldn't have been happier. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. <laughs>